0: grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever is what the Apostle Paul wrote in greeting the church in Galatia. But let me this evening just greet you by saying, what's good, y'all? Y'all doing all right? I am uh, incredibly grateful for the privilege to make much of Jesus with you. Uh, This evening, I recognize um, that tonight, for me, is a blessing all on its own. Um, Because I have been given this unique privilege to stand before you as both your covenant brother, but as a black man as well. And as we celebrate this Black History Month, I am reminded of the gift that I have been endowed with to bring about a sense of cultural awareness to my brothers and sisters within this body of Christ. In 1963, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote from his Birmingham jail cell, he says, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white concealer or the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your message or your direct action. So they paternalistically feel that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. And though Dr. King wrote these words in 1963, in case we're completely unaware, this is true for us even today. I'm introducing today's message this way not to be condemning by any means but to encourage us in the same grace that Jesus has achieved for us on Calvary's cross. Please note that I am making a humble declaration not to stand on a moral high ground or because I place my blackness above the truth of the gospel or for pats on the back, and I know this won't win me any friends or influence. Yet, as I read the scriptures, I am continually compelled to believe that as in Genesis 1 that I too am made in the image of God. Or maybe it is like Galatians uh, three twenty-eight, that if we are all believers in Jesus, we are one in Christ Jesus. Or maybe it's like Acts 2 5 11, that the gathering of all peoples together is a beautiful gift from God. Or maybe it's like James 2 and 1, that partiality is sin. Or 1 Corinthians thirteen four through 7, that love rejoices in what is true. Or Ephesians two fourteen that Jesus came to tear down the walls of division. Or maybe it's Revelations chapter 5 and 7 and 22, which paint a picture of heaven. That if we're uncomfortable with brothers and sisters who don't look like us, W.E.B. Du Bois was the first African-American to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard. He did much of his doctoral research studying sociology at Berean Presbyterian Church. This church still exists today on the campus of Temple University in Philadelphia. was pastored by a man named Matthew Anderson, who had been installed as the pastor on October 14th of 1880. Du Bois described Berean Presbyterian as a church that was conducting a successful building and loan association. The church itself was a bank. He said it was a kindergarten, a medical dispensary providing medication for those in need. It was a seaside home beside the numerous church society that no church in the city was doing so much for the betterment of its people. Du Bois is most recognized, though, for his book, The Souls of Black Folk. I suggest that you would add that to the list of things to read. It is, though, essentially a series of essays in which Du Bois leverages his experience as a black man in America and the larger struggle for equality and injustice. And the book is unapologetically dogmatic assertion that given the deeply prejudicial realities embedded within American society, It leads to what is true for me, even as I preach this evening, a state of double consciousness. For both how I am viewed by myself through the lens of Christ's atoning work for me, but also how society views me. There is ample empirical evidence for the reality that I am not always viewed as a fellow image bearer of God. Let's suffice it to say then that iniquity and injustice are both natural and expected byproducts of a world that is beset with sin. The metastasizing effects of which we as sinners are to blame with regard to our deliberate and in essence, maltreatment of one another. Where then is our hope in this, you might ask? And let me tell you tonight that it is in the God who speaks calm to the storm and delivers from evil. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth. From the place where the sun rises to the place where the sun goes down, your name is worthy to be praised. We thank you, Lord, for your manifold blessings this day, and above all, we thank you for the sending of your son, Jesus. Now, God, we ask that you would be our teacher, that we may behold the wondrous things of your word. Let us cast aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness that we might receive your word that is implanted to save our souls. That we might be doers and not hearers only, that we would deceive ourselves. And use us for your glory. Use me, God, to preach your gospel faithfully, with clarity, with power, power, wisdom, humility, and freedom. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our pastor Ben and I are probably a lot more alike than most of us uh, would probably think. Over the past two years, I've been grateful to learn much from his preaching and his leading. He has modeled for me on so many levels the love of the church and its purity, the love of a husband and a father with their pastoral call, a commitment to rest, but also some really practical things like a love for our city and this desire to see Winston-Salem saturated with gospel proclamation. This for me, though, is probably best expressed in how much time he spends on campus in meetings with people in coffee shops and restaurants around our city. Uh, always uh, with students equipping and encouraging believers and even writing sermons with those beats and that little baby MacBook. (laughs) Not in the confines of an office, but out in the city among its people. So me, trying to be very Ben-like, has tried to kind of develop the same kind of habit of being out among people. And so I was in Starbucks studying and people have come to know me well because I'm always there and I got asked the question often what are you planning to preach this time and my response is always Jesus (laughs) and so they asked me what don't they get tired of hearing the same thing my response was I hope they know whenever I start preaching Jesus that it's time for Jonah to sit down A few weeks back, though, Ben gave me a short book by a guy named Richard Bachman entitled Jesus, a short introduction, and he opens the book like this. He says, Jesus has never been defined by Western religion and culture. In fact, no other figure has so extensively crossed the cultural divisions of humanity and found a place in so many diverse cultural contexts. And when Jesus has been used to legitimate domination and oppression, very often the oppressed, like the black slaves of the American South, have been energized to resist by the solidarity of Jesus with them. So we see Jesus then is this blending of both deity and humanity. Jesus is the meeting place of time and eternity. Jesus is this intersection of heaven and earth. And I highlight these truths because I recognize that today's scripture, for some, is a pretty hard pill to swallow. We're going from Jesus talking to a storm and it completely stops to him casting out some demons and an into some pigs and they jump into the ocean killing themselves. So there are some who might find that completely implausible because maybe we don't believe it's possible that someone could hold this kind of authority or maybe there's a question about the reliability of the scriptures but I would ask you then to bear in mind that innate within each of us is this primal desire for self-sufficiency to control our life circumstances and to shape our world around us for our benefit. Or maybe your belief in Jesus is simply a social construct. And you agree only in principle to biblical morality in the sense of only in what is in your best interest. I would argue, though, that the Bible is God's perfect pure, and eternal wisdom. And it has the power to convict the conscience and penetrate the heart. We, however, are blind to the depths of our own self-centeredness and overconfident that we have the wisdom to manage our lives. Those who are students of the Bible would know this well because they would have had these experiences of nearly reading the text and then going back to the text sometime later would realize that they're always learning something new. There's new meanings and ideas that that had not seen before. And so the Bible is in the end this single great story that comes to a climax in the person and work of Jesus. So we see that Jesus is the hope Of the patriarchs from Genesis that he is the rock of Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is that makes us clean by living a perfectly righteous life. He is the temple of the Lord. He is the true King of Israel fulfilling all that Israel was supposed to do and be. He is the songs of David, the suffering servant of the prophets, the true wisdom of God to those being saved and the very means and wisdom of God for us. It is this Jesus that we encounter in tonight's text. So no matter our position in life, we all live with some sort of authority. As believers, uh, our ultimate authority, we believe, comes from God, And though we give respect to civil government, our bosses, our professors or teachers, we recognize that even they are subject to the oversight and governance of God. Matthew's gospel presents us with this unique intention to show Jesus's authority over all things. Look then with me at verse 23. It says that as Jesus got into the boat, that his disciples followed him. I'm sure this seems mostly like a minor detail, but uh, let me remind you that the gospel writers are completely intentional in their approach. So as following Jesus becomes less popular for us culturally, the greater the awareness grows of both discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, The large crowds that we see in the previous chapters have gone away, and those who are left are those genuine, joy-filled, faithful followers of Jesus. Those who follow Jesus are those who are willing to lose everything to gain him. Those who rejoice at the opportunity to suffer for his name, yet experience this deep and full intimacy with him. The storm of verse 24 tells us that there is this crazy storm going on. This boat is rocking and rolling and Jesus, Jesus is asleep. Jesus and the disciples had boarded the boat and the northern end of the Sea of Galilee in the town of Capernaum. He had just preached the Sermon on the Mount and the people go away and he's only being followed by those who are closest to him when the storm begins to rage. Here in verses 23 through 27, we witness the most famous account of Jesus's demonstration of authority, even over nature. Notice, though, that the disciples find themselves in this position because they are simply following Jesus. This wasn't a result of their sin. This wasn't because they had done wrong, but because following Jesus comes with a price. So the disciples are struggling to keep their boat afloat. And the text says that Jesus is sleeping. I love Mark 4.38 tells it like this. It says, but he was in the stern asleep and on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher... Do you not care that we are perishing? Perishing. Not only is Jesus asleep, but Jesus then got comfortable on a cushion. He done wrapped himself in a blanket. And these brothers come screaming like kids at a Taylor Swift concert. Shake it off, shake it off. The life of a follower of Jesus, then, will come with some storms. Yet James, the brother of Jesus, who went on to pastor the church in Jerusalem, says that we are to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And though the storms of life may come, God has promised... To be with us. So we see Jesus awaken from his sleep and he asked them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. This question of little faith implies not that they didn't believe, but simply that there is a faith deficiency. The disciples were in the very presence of the one through whom the world was created, and yet they found themselves with little faith. As I thought about this text, I was immediately reminded of the story of creation. As God alone creates the heavens and the earth by the power of his word, the world that was formless and void and covered in darkness is transformed as he speaks light into existence. John talks about this same light. He says that this light is the very light of men. In Jesus, God brings order to the chaos of our lives, driving out the darkness and fills those void. Jesus has all things under his subjection So, what are you afraid of, you of little faith? What are you afraid of, you of little faith, that that Jesus does not have already under his authority? Your marriage, maybe? Is it maybe your education? Maybe... It's your kids, maybe it's your job, or maybe you're just like me and you just have this paralyzing fear that you're just going to fail. On the daily, my little faith is this fear that how am I going to provide for my family? My, My little faith how, how am I going to let down the people who have invested so much time and energy into me? So what are you afraid of, Oh, you of little faith? We are not without hope, though. As the text tells us that Jesus rises and rebukes the wind and the sea, and there was great calm. This calm, though, comes with great sacrifice. See, the calm comes from the sacrifice that drove nails through the hands and feet of Jesus. That crowned him with thorns. This calm... Came from being beaten and spit on. This calm came from being pierced in his side, being buried in a grave. He has given us this great calm. Look, though, at what the text says in verse 27. It says, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? No, the disciples are not questioning the identity of Jesus, but simply reflecting that Jesus just blew their minds. This should not be a foreign concept for us. I can imagine Moses standing on the edge of the Red Sea. And seeing those waters roll back and he had to have his mind blown. I can imagine that Israel, as they circled Jericho, watching the walls fall, had to have their minds blown. I'm sure that this is exactly what the Apostle Paul meant uh, when he wrote uh, in this church. He said, uh, look at this. He says uh, that The When they had their mind blown, he says that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than you can ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory of the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. I wish I had a church with me tonight. We should be living in this expectancy that God is going to blow our minds. I am waiting on God to blow my mind with this vision of hundreds of young black men and women praising and worshiping Jesus. I have this amazing vision of having my mind blow, seeing those same students singing songs about Jesus and studying the word that from Genesis to Revelations, points them to Jesus, discipling others that they would come to know Jesus. Jesus is still in the storm-calming business. As we look at verses 28-34, through 34, I just want to point out a couple of things. First, know that there is very real battle going on for the souls of humanity. I know that there are some who would suggest that what happens here in the Bible does not happen today. And though we may not see it manifested in the same way, the Bible is clear uh, that there will be demonic influence until Jesus returns. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. And while we might not see demon oppression in the same way, know that that demon oppression is present in the systems and policies shaping our laws and impacting our communities. Know also then that there are those who misunderstand the nature of spiritual warfare and blame Satan for everything. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. These are the devil made me do it, people. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, he made me do it, she made me do it. I ate the fruit, but it ain't my fault. Verse 28 begins, And when he came to the other side, Matthew uses this imagery to show that Jesus is going from ministry among the Jewish people to ministry among Gentiles. The Gadarenes were likely in the city of Gadara as one of the 10 cities of the Decapolis. We know that this is primarily a Gentile area because of the two men. It says that the two men who came out to meet Jesus was foreigners of the covenant. And there was also this presence of pigs, which were considered unclean, so no Orthodox Jew would be around. The two men who encountered Jesus are described as being fierce, and that no one would come near them, and that they wouldn't even pass their way. But as they meet Jesus, they cry out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Notice, though, that immediately as they see Jesus, they know he is the very son of God. And not only did they know him, but they knew that they were under his authority. So they go on to ask, have you come here to torment us? They are completely aware of their coming, final judgment and damnation. So they ask Jesus to send them away into a herd of pigs. And Jesus says, go, as they run down a steep bank and drown themselves in the sea. the story, though, doesn't quite progress the way we think it would, though, would it? It talks about these herdsmen going to tell others... They had been witnesses of Jesus' great demonstration of power, even over demonic forces. And they run away to bring the people of the city to witness this great liberation of these brothers, but rather to see them only beg Jesus to leave. See, the people of Gadara, their greatest value was not to see these men freed, but financial gain. This I know sounds a bit completely absurd until we're honest with God and ourselves about what we truly love most. Just as it was for the people of Gadara, so it is for us today to live with a greater value for the treasures of this world rather than the treasures of his grace. Matthew 6:21 tells us that where our treasure is, where our heart is also. And while I mentioned that Jesus is still in the storm calming business, let me just close by saying that Jesus is still in the deliverance business too. Uh, these brief and vivid scenes from Matthew 8 paint this sobering picture. See, following Jesus is something that is completely encouraging but it comes with some storms that rage and will force us to depend on his authority to cast things out. But why are you afraid or you of little faith? I pray tonight that, that we would live Knowing that Jesus is the God man, the final and ultimate sacrifice for sin, that he is infinitely wise and sees all things, that Jesus knows all things and his purity has no error, that his